Today on the Tove Podcast, we welcome Dr. Tim Sigler. Dr. Sigler currently serves as Provost and Dean at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. Dr. Sigler specializes in areas related to biblical languages and has taught courses such as Life and Bible Times, Hebrew Grammar, Hebrew Exegesis, Old Testament Wisdom Literature, Old Testament Historical Literature, Hermeneutics, the Methods of Bible Study, Biblical Archaeology, and a Biblical Theology of Jerusalem, which will be our topic for today. On two separate occasions, his courses have received the Access Course of the Year Award in a competition for online education curriculum sponsored by Christianity Today. He's contributed to the recent book, What Should We Think About Israel?, as well as the Moody Bible Commentary and the Dictionary of Daily Life in Biblical and Post-Biblical Antiquity. He and his hospitable wife, Bernice, have three adventurous children. I'm excited to talk and learn from Dr. Sigler today on the Tove Podcast. You are listening to the Tove Podcast. So welcome to the Tove Podcast, and I am very excited again to have Dr. Tim Sigler of Shepherd's Theological Seminary with us. As mentioned in the introduction, Dr. Sigler serves as the provost and dean of Shepherd's Theological Seminary in Cary, North Carolina. Dr. Sigler, welcome to the Tove Podcast. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you, Levi. I look forward to uh, being a guest. Yeah, well, it's uh, amazing to have you on. Uh, we've known each other for a number of years now and have crossed paths both in the Chicagoland area as well as the Holy Land, Israel. Uh, I thought as a beginning, Dr. Sigler, if you could share with Tove Podcast listeners a little bit about Shepherd's Theological Seminary. How is it different from other seminaries? What makes it unique? Well, Shepherd's Theological Seminary is a seminary for the local church in the local church. So while we have three teaching sites, our main campus is located at Colonial Baptist Church in Cary, North Carolina. But we also have a teaching site in Laramie, Wyoming, uh, located in Laramie Valley Chapel, and then a third teaching site in Bryan, Texas, located at Emmanuel Baptist Church. So each of our teaching sites have pastors and staff who are committed uh, theologically and in terms of ministry focus to helping those who would come to gain a seminary education to really prepare for life and ministry. Our desire is to train servant leaders for life and ministry, and we do that in the context of a healthy, vibrant life of a local church. Mm, wonderful. And it's my understanding that every student who comes to Shepherds has the opportunity to study in Israel. Is that right? That is true. And we're so grateful. That was a part of the real mission match, if you could say, when I was being asked to consider this opportunity to lead Shepherds Seminary. Well, what, what, what is Shepherds Seminary and what is it like? And well, one of the key features is that every student has the privilege of studying in a fully funded land package in Israel. Wow. And so we take every student as part of our Israel initiative. And what 
do the students get to do while they're there? I mean, do they just sit in a classroom all day or do they get to walk about the land? Oh, I promise you, it's not sitting in the classroom. It is uh, going day and night, if you will, uh, following uh, the leadership of one of our key professors, Dr. Doug Bookman, and, uh, and other members of our team who participate in the Israel Initiative. They are uh, racing up every tell and going down in every valley and uh, participating in the life of the modern state of Israel, but also looking back at the archaeology, at the history, at the culture uh, that made up the biblical world so that we can better interpret the Bible in light of its context. I re recall the um, oft-cited hermeneutical uh, advice that if we're going to interpret the Bible accurately, we need to bridge the four gaps that exist between our world and the biblical world, the mm. language, history, culture, and geography gap. Mm. And you really seek to bridge that gap between modern readers and the biblical text by taking them to the sites and uh, having them read the Bible, study the Bible on location. Yeah, well, I know for me personally, when I had the chance to study in Israel for a year, it was truly life-changing. You know, and I'd already, I'd already come to faith in the Messiah at that point. But like you said, all of a sudden, after my first few trips to Israel— Wow, that the Word of God became uh, alive. Uh, I saw things in a new light that I'd never seen before. And so, you know, if, if you're a listener out there today and uh, perhaps you're considering going back to school or maybe you're looking at new schools, I'd highly recommend that uh, the Shepherd Seminary be on your list of potential school visits. Thanks so much. And in fact, one of the special programs we have is a one-year intensive program. A number of people have entered the program who already know that they don't plan a career of vocational ministry, serving as a full-time worker somewhere, but they want to bring a biblical and theological foundation to whatever area God is leading them to serve in, whether they're going to be doctors or attorneys or school teachers or work in the business sector. Um, We've got a number of students who, with those very plans and with the undergraduate background to prepare them for their career, but they, they know they want to have an impact. And so uh, both on our Cary campus through Shepherds Institute and at our Laramie, Wyoming teaching site called the West Institute, uh, we have a one-year Master's in Theological Studies program that takes students in 12 months through all of the Bible, mm. but also ground them in sound biblical theology, plus, of course, take them to Israel to study the Bible on location. So uh, this one-year program is a fantastic way to, to take one year of your life and become equipped for the rest of your life. Wow. So not just a program for college-age people, but if you just want to get to know the Bible on a deeper level, you want to really see it in context and connect those four different uh, areas from our world to the Bible's world, that's the way to do it. Well, very good. I want to back up just a second from your position at Shepherds, Dr. Sigler. Uh, there was a point in your life where you decided you want to dedicate yourself to this kind of work, to the work of helping people understand 
the Bible in its context, to the work of helping people grow in their faith, and ultimately the work of helping people devote more of their hearts to the Lord. Uh, But there had to come a point in your life where your heart was changed. And I wondered if you could just share briefly about your journey to faith and and how how the Lord worked that out for you. Sure. You know, in so many ways, any of us is a, a miracle case or an unlikely case. But I also see God's hand of mercy in bringing my parents uh, to um, keep an unexpected pregnancy viable by marrying at a very young age and then raising me. And though my father did not come from a Jesus-believing background, he grew up in the Holy Land, we'll say New York, that is. <laughs> uh, but my mother came from a family that had some some background in in trusting in Jesus, a faithful grandmother, uh, for instance, who read the Bible through, and I'm grateful to have inherited my great-grandmother's Bible, where at the end of each testament, she indicates, I finished reading the books of the Old Testament on this date, and I finished reading the books of the New Testament a little while later on this date. And uh, my mother, though very young, prayed for me every day in my crib that I would come to know the Lord at an early age and grow up to serve him. Thankfully, she shared the gospel with me throughout my childhood. And clearly, at least by eight years old, if not sooner, I remember distinctly uh, having clearly understood that Jesus came to give his life as a sacrifice for my sin. And he rose from the dead and offers eternal life to all who will trust in him. Hmm. But it was really sometime later, I suppose, (laughs) I mean, it sounds quite early, but at age 13, I had a real personal little revival in my own life where uh, commitment to the Lord began to take a new path. And I began sharing the gospel with students at my high school and becoming more serious about growing in my own faith. And it was around that time that I began to see the Lord blessing those opportunities to share with other people about the scripture. And it forced me, though I wasn't particularly interested in reading or academics, it forced me to want to have better answers for the hope that lies within me. Mm. And that drove me both to study the Bible, but also to find better answers to the questions that friends and I were exploring together in our conversations And that kind of set me on a trajectory. So I wound up in a Bible college at age 17. And by the time I was 19, studying the Bible on location in Israel. And uh, ever since that time, I've been returning uh, to the Holy Land, uh, to the land of the Bible, um, as often as possible, not only to study the Bible on location, uh, it's a place where I spend my summers nowadays uh, with my family in Israel each summer, um, mostly focusing on writing projects, but also teaching and preaching in various congregations throughout the land, uh, but also hosting some biblical studies tours and uh, giving the occasional lecture at some of the colleges and universities there. 
but um, helping others as I continue to grow myself in a better understanding of the context of Scripture. Mm, wonderful. Well, I know that several members of my family uh, have had the privilege of joining you uh, for some of your teachings and tours in Israel. My parents uh, had the opportunity several years back to join you, and it was an incredible experience for them that they still talk about, and they still refer to Dr. Sigler's teachings from time to time, and so that's wonderful. And and as I mentioned previously, the, the groups that my wife and I lead over, uh, we are very intentional about connecting with you so that we can get a full tour of Jerusalem. And one of the things I love about your tours of Jerusalem is not only do you integrate the history, which obviously is rich and deep in a place like the Holy Land, but you provide a biblical theology of Jerusalem as we tour from point to point, whether it's at the Temple Mount, on the Mount of Olives, or somewhere else in the city, the key or the lens, I should say, that you are looking through is the lens of Scripture. And so I wondered if, if you could just share with us a little bit about what a biblical theology of Jerusalem looks like. I think for, for most believers today, they read about Jerusalem in the Bible, and they view it as some ancient place that really maybe shouldn't even be important to their current view of the Bible or their current view of God and theology. And um, I think you make a pretty good case that actually our biblical theology of Jerusalem is very important. And so I wanted to ask you more about that and if you could provide us with an overview. When we speak of a biblical theology of anything, really, it should begin with the beginning of Scripture in Genesis and take us through all the entire scope and sequence of the Bible mm -hmm. and thematically explore what does the Bible overall in all of its parts have to tell us about any given subject. That is the way in which we would go about tracing a biblical theology through the scriptures. When we begin to think about Jerusalem and how it is described in the scriptures, uh, wow, it, it, it is one of the major themes. I mean, we could do a biblical theology of many other themes that get a lot of uh, press, actually, in terms of this conversation. Uh, if you were to do a quick search on a biblical theology of, you would probably find many other themes before ever finding anyone address, I wonder what the Bible collectively has to say about Jerusalem. Right. For that matter, I'm reminded of one of my colleagues who had some students who uh, now are past their seminary experience and out in the trenches of ministry, and they were wanting to take their congregation through an overview of Scripture and an overview of the Bible and just kind of give a uh, the big picture, if you will. So they decided to sit down and dedicate themselves to listening through the Bible in an audio Bible format together, these two pastors. And, and, and I suppose, you know, I'm just imagining they got their coffee pots full and they got their notepads ready and they, they started their 
audio Bible, and I think they sped it up to like one and a half time, so they were clicking right along there. And uh, But their intent was, without taking many notes and without trying to get too deep into the weeds, they just hear all the teaching of Scripture. I think it took them about, let's say, two and a half weeks mm. playing their audio Bible, going from Genesis to Revelation. Anyway, they called one of our faculty members, and with some degree of surprise, they said, you know, I know you told us that this is really important, but, you know, this book, the Bible, this book is about Israel. And, you know, they were just shocked at how often God's plan for the Jewish people, um, how God used the Jewish people to bring the Messiah and the scriptures, how God still has a plan for Israel, there is a future hope for Israel, etc. This book is about Israel. So, I mean, in some way, they were catching on to this great and grand biblical theological theme of Israel. But I really want to focus on this city that is the capital city, both of modern Israel, but also of biblical Israel. Jerusalem was the focal point. In fact, when we're in the Torah, it's interesting that the name Jerusalem never appears as Jerusalem. Mm. But the theme of Jerusalem is very important already in Genesis. So starting in Genesis, we would already begin to see some interesting parallels between the first three chapters of the Bible and the last three chapters of the Bible in the book of Revelation. Mm. We would begin to see a reference to the Garden of Eden uh, that should be understood in its original ancient Near Eastern context as a cosmic mountain. And when I say cosmic mountain and Garden of Eden, many people might be thinking, well, that's not how it looks in my uh, Bible study books that I've seen or, or some artist conception of Jerusalem. Uh, well, think again, because Jerusalem is described in Genesis chapter 2 as a well-watered garden in which four rivers flow out of it. Mm -hmm. Now, if you think of the hydrology there, four rivers are flowing out of Eden. What does that suggest about the elevation of Eden? Mm, suggests it might be pretty high. It suggests it might be pretty high. So it was well understood that also, not only was this uh, a, a garden with well-watered places, but also some trees that are mentioned, but also a place where Adam and Eve were meeting God in both Canaanite and within the surrounding cultures, you find this cosmic mountain motif in a number of systems, you could say, where people were regularly going up on mountains to worship false deities and so forth. Uh, and so for God to speak to Moses and to uh, command him to write the Torah, including the Genesis account of Adam and Eve, and to describe them in this garden uh, where waters are flowing out of it and where they were meeting God, it would have been a part of the mindset that, oh, yeah, they're up on a mountain, they're meeting with God, and there are these trees. Of course, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but also the tree of life are mentioned explicitly. And, by the way, when you get to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and the final chapters of the book of Revelation, what do you find once again? But you find the rivers, and you find the tree of life, and you find the new Jerusalem. Well, interestingly, within rabbinic thought, 
Jerusalem is often viewed as the umphalos, or the, I think the, the maybe casual word for that is like the belly button of the world, the place where it all begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the creation touchstone, if you will. And clearly there seems to be some connection to Eden as a place to meet God on this cosmic mountain and other similar places. Now, let me just say that Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.15, and your listeners can uh, look this up, but in Genesis 2.15, they're commanded to tend and to keep the garden. These two words are a word pair that can also be translated both to cultivate and to keep or to perform the duties and to do the service of worship in the tabernacle, Numbers 3-7. So I find it fascinating to consider that mankind in the garden, they were commanded both to, well, tend and keep the garden, this cosmic mountain, this sanctuary where in the cool of the evening they met the Lord on a daily basis. They were to tend and to keep this garden sanctuary in a way similar to what the Levites were commanded with the later tabernacle. Wow. There are a number of points of connections there that suggest that this this really was a, a temple, garden, even palace. Notice the way the stones are described in the Garden of Eden how uh, ornate and majestic the place was. This was a place where God was already, prior to Israel's tabernacle, later described in the books of Exodus and Numbers, and Leviticus for that matter. But uh, similar to the tabernacle, the garden was, if you will, like the first tabernacle, or the first place where God dwelt with mankind. Mm. Move that forward a little bit. I would also mention that The name Jerusalem is not specifically mentioned in the book of Genesis or even in the rest of the Torah, but it's hinted at. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, Abraham is called to go sacrifice his son uh, on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is, of course, in Jerusalem. That's Genesis 22, but even prior to that, you have uh, Genesis 14 with Abraham going to meet Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Notice it's not quite called Jerusalem, but it is Salem nonetheless. And if we'd fast forward through the Torah, we would find that God was revealing from Sinai to Moses about this place that he would choose, a place that he would choose to, and here's the operative phrase, to cause his name to dwell. And as God would one day bring the children of Israel into the promised land and command them. Deuteronomy 16, 16 tells them three times a year, you're to go to the place, the place that the Lord your God shall choose, the place that he will choose for his name to dwell. This common phrase, a place the Lord will choose for his name to dwell, um, it's hinting at the place that we now as later readers of the Torah, we know exactly what that place was. It Mm -hmm. was Jerusalem. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, that is a fascinating connection between the Garden of Eden 
and the location of Jerusalem. So just so we can be really clear, and so our listeners understand, what you are positing is that there, in the narrative of Scripture there, there is a deliberate, intentional allusion, uh, or maybe direct connection, you'd call it, to the Garden of Eden being in what is the exact spot that Jerusalem is located on today. Is that right? I'm not trying to make some, like, archaeological um, claim about the location of the Garden of Eden as much as I'm making a, a thematic connection between the Garden of Eden and the ultimate holy place. Mm, fascinating. Now, last week on the Tove podcast, we looked at the future of the Dead Sea. And a mm. few of the passages we covered, one of them was in Zechariah chapter 14, where it talks about this living water, this stream that's going to flow out of Jerusalem. But then the, the text, our primary passage for last week's episode, was, of course, Ezekiel uh, chapter 47. And in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel the prophet describes this trickle of a water that begins from a new, newly built sanctuary right in the heart of Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, the, the river is ankle deep, and then it's up to his knees, and then it's up to his waist, and then he can't cross it. And everywhere this river goes, it's bringing life. Uh, mm -hmm. Trees are flourishing. There's fish in the Dead Sea. And as hard as that is to believe right now, it's going to happen someday in the future. And um, what we might have there, we could say, is somewhat of a restored Eden. Would it Would it not be? I mean, that's that's essentially somewhat of the picture we get of, of Eden. And we have a, a new sanctuary where God is dwelling. Jesus, the Messiah, is reigning on the throne from Jerusalem. Uh, so that's a fascinating connection as well, if we think of it as connecting to that theme of Eden. Absolutely right. And you really are seeing in the prophetic books this concept of... Uh paradise that had been lost, but now will be regained and found and restored. The, the theme exists all throughout the Tanakh, uh, all throughout the Old Testament, and then we get to today. So yes. a lot of people, uh, I think, based on my conversations and based on sermons I hear and, and, and books I read, just kind of view Jerusalem today as we're in this in-between time where Jerusalem used to be so important because, boy, was it the locus of worship and sacrifice and people were supposed to stream to it. And then, of course, the king of Jerusalem, the king of the earth, came down, as you mentioned. Uh, Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, gave his life uh, for everybody and then was raised from the grave. And uh, he'll return someday. But until he does, we're in this in-between time. And most people don't know what to do with Jerusalem today. And so how do we view Jerusalem today? What is our biblical theology of Jerusalem right now? Oh, that's a great topic. In fact, I asked my students in the class to address that in some of our course discussion times. And I exposed them to a number of authors who would represent, we'll say, what you could call the majority, even Christian view. Um, I've heard a number of people say things like, well, the Jews have Jerusalem and the Muslims have Mecca, but Christians 
you know, dot, 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 what Christians have heaven. Christians don't have any physical location where the faith becomes, you know, localized. And I think, huh, you know, you should really read the Bible again about <laughs> what it has to say about Jerusalem. Yeah. Maybe you, you don't quite want to uh, make those distinctions or can't biblically support some of those assumptions. In fact, one author, and I'll drop a few names here just to um, give a few other approaches. Um, one author, Peter W. L. Walker, in his book, Jesus and the Holy City, focuses on how Jesus is the new temple and even what he will call the replacement of Jerusalem. He goes on to argue that the city has, of Jerusalem has no present or future significance for the believer today. Quote, any Christian attempt to invest the places associated with Jesus in Palestine with a new spiritual significance should be ruled out. Jesus himself was the only true, quote unquote, holy place. Uh, what do you think of that? Well, I think if we're going to take the approach of Mr. Walker, then it seems to me like a lot of the passages I read, especially in the prophetic writings, uh, would have to have some other meaning than what the clear meaning is. So all of the passages that we've mentioned on the Tove podcast over our 40 plus episodes about there being a restored Israel, about the desert blooming, about the Jewish people coming back to the land, um, about Jerusalem being raised up high above all the rest of the surrounding mountains. All of those would have to all of a sudden have some sort of spiritual or allegorical interpretation to them that, in my opinion, would just be anybody's guess on what that interpretation could be. Uh, but perhaps you have different thoughts. Well, no, I would concur. In fact, one would have to come to another set of conclusions about what the references in the Bible to Israel and Jerusalem really mean in their original context. Now they must mean something different. In fact, it's sad to note that right now there is a controversy afoot in Denmark. Uh, maybe I should say something is rotten there uh, that uh, friends from Denmark have alerted me to, and that is that a major Bible translation is now coming out, which will replace the words Jerusalem or the references to Israel with other words. Can you imagine? So that these Psalms that elevate Jerusalem in our thoughts, no, no, that elevate Israel and God's plan for Israel in our thoughts, that, that focus on the Jewish people and the role of Israel in God's redemptive plan, somehow need to be rethought and recast to speak about the church. Yeah. Well, as we've said here on the Tove podcast time and time again, this kind of thinking uh, that we can just discard Israel or Jerusalem, whether it is a discarding of the theology or whether it's actually erasing them from the very words of a Bible, uh, stems, we believe here at the Tove podcast, in a large part from something called replacement theology. 
And uh, replacement theology has uh, several different forms to it, but at its core, uh, the belief is that God is largely done with the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. And uh, there are several different reasons why uh, replacement uh, theologians claim such, but by and large, most people claim that the Jewish people had their chance, they failed, and God has now moved on, or they believe uh, in what they're describing in a new term called fulfillment theology, where, no, God still kept all of his promises to Israel. They're now just fulfilled in Jesus, so that all of those previous promises about the borders of the land, and again, the physical restoration, the spiritual restoration, well, those are now just kind of subsumed under the Messiahship of Jesus. And Dr. Sigler, we've said this before on the Tove podcast, but that sounds really spiritual. It sounds, it sounds wholesome to believe. Man, Jesus just fulfills everything. And it's like you feel wrong disagreeing with that because Jesus really is so important and he is the Messiah and he's God in the flesh. But it really does make a mockery of the very words of Scripture. And it's an oversimplification of what the Bible actually teaches. And uh, Dr. Sigler, that's why on the Tove podcast, we've actually gone through a covenant series here where we've taken a look at the different covenants that God has instituted with the world and the nation of Israel. And when you take a look at those distinct covenants and the unconditional status of those covenants, you realize that it's not as simple as, well, there was the Old Testament, and now God's on to the church in the New Testament, and that's pretty much the storyline. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot more to it than that, and uh, if Israel's not a part of that storyline, then I'm not sure the church is going to be going forward either. Well, you are so right that this is a, a going approach, very common, even among evangelical Christians today, but certainly was the dominant view throughout church history. Uh, one helpful work that I regularly recommend is for people to consider the uh, publication by Michael Vlock called Has the Church Replaced Israel? A Theological Evaluation. And additionally, there's a helpful book by Barry Horner, Future Israel, Why Christian Anti-Judaism Must Be Challenged. Uh, there, there are many other places you could go. By the way, just today I noticed uh, an article out by Michael Vlock um, on the Gospel Coalition website titled something about what is dispensationalism, but that could also be a contributing piece to help people address this issue of what is the role of ethnic Israel in God's redemptive plan? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think our present day theology of Jerusalem certainly includes what's happened in history, right? So many important things in the redemptive plan of God have happened right there in Jerusalem. And to have the privilege of just walking in those places uh, is really a privilege because up until, uh, you know, the last century or so, it was a lot more dangerous to do so. And, uh, of course, international travel was a lot more dangerous and, and a lot of people didn't have the funds for it. And so the reality that we're living in today, where so many people who believe the words of Scripture can actually go to a place like Jerusalem and the surrounding towns 
is incredible. We live in an incredible time in history. We are so blessed. And so absolutely our view, our, our current theology of, of Jerusalem encapsulates everything that has happened there historically. And I think a large part of our current theology is really taking a position of love and compassion for the residents of Jerusalem. Uh, and that includes both our Jewish friends as well as our Arab friends. Uh, it is God's design that we live in peace with one another. And that's why I think, uh, in my opinion, Psalm 122.6 should play such an important role for our current outlook on Jerusalem. And Psalm 122.6 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. And I really think that the psalmist there is commanding those who call on the God of Israel to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, why would he do that? Well, I think ultimately he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to write those words. But he probably also understands that because Jerusalem is so important in the plan of God, there is going to be perpetual conflict within and around that city. And so, therefore, it is important that everyone who aligns themselves with the God of Israel and the Messiah of Israel be praying for the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Well, finally, Dr. Sigler, I'd like to transition just for a little bit. We've, we've talked about the thematic approach of a biblical theology of Jerusalem. We've talked about a modern-day biblical theology of Jerusalem and what that could look like. And let's just talk a little bit about the future of Jerusalem according to the Bible. You alluded to this several times when you mentioned uh, the last few chapters of Revelation. Uh, I talked about it just a bit when I talked about the prophets. But what's in store for the future of Jerusalem? Because for me, when I when I read the prophets and when I look at what's in store for Jerusalem, it gets me really excited. And it actually motivates me toward action right now, even though I know that it's yet in the future. So can you paint a picture for us of what God will do in the coming days? Well, what a, what a brief challenge, we'll say, because, you know, a, a thoroughgoing look at a biblical theology of Jerusalem is going to step back and take a much more careful look at all the component parts of scriptures. We think of the Tanakh, the Torah, Nevi'im and Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, and the writings. We think about different types of biblical literature, whether, again, it's the, the Torah or the historical books, and then the poetic books, and then the prophetic books just within the First Testament. But then in the New Testament, you come to the Gospels, you come to the historical account in the book of Acts, and you come to the epistles, and then finally to the book of Revelation. Um, and of course, the New Testament is building upon the prior Testament, uh, quoting regularly from antecedent scripture and, and interacting with through both citation and allusion and echoes of previous scriptures. I remember uh, someone telling me that they really don't like reading the Old Testament, but they're, they're really interested in the book of Revelation. And come to find out the New Testament book of Revelation actually cites the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. Hmm. It's 
filled with allusion and citation of uh, the First Testament. So when we come to the book of Revelation, this is really not at all the first time that these future eschatological or end-time promises regarding Jerusalem, or many other things, have been mentioned. But already in the Psalms, you have prophetic praises about what God will do as he restores Zion and the theme of waiting on the Lord to um, fulfill his promises regarding Jerusalem. But clearly then in the prophetic literature of the Hebrew prophets, you begin to see Jerusalem as the place where God's name dwells, as the place where the warnings on Jerusalem in that ancient time period of Israel's kingdom was, well, hearing oracles of judgment against the city, but also oracles of salvation that would hope for a time after Israel's exile, where God would one day cause the rebuilding of the temple. Looking beyond that which was even the second temple period, but to some future ultimate restoration of Jerusalem in God's redemptive plan. You see this in a number of prophets where spiritual changes, even ceremonial changes to the temple worship, but even physical, topographical, hydrological, and spatial changes. You alluded to uh, Zechariah 14 where very much like we read about in a number of other places, I think of um, Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, speaking about the restoration of Israel in the millennial kingdom and specifically of Jerusalem and the temple, and how there will be the elevation of the city of Jerusalem and the de-elevation or lowering of other surrounding hills, and a highway going up to Jerusalem, and so forth, that you uh, find also in the book of Isaiah, but you find also this mountain of the house of the Lord that will be established as the chief of the mountains, mentioned in, Malachi, uh, mentioned in Micah chapter 4. These changes that are topographical and hydrological water flowing from the temple in a way that's going to even uh, flood the Dead Sea with fresh water. This is going to be transformative. And as we would move to the book of Revelation, this book, which it's titled in Greek, the Apocalypsis, is the unveiling of just how God is going to go about fulfilling all of these promises that he made concerning Jerusalem. So there will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a new Jerusalem. And ultimately, there will be new rule by the one who is the ultimate promised anointed ruler who will culminate all of these promises as Scripture reaches its fullness and fulfillment in Jesus, the Messianic King, who will rule over the new heavens and the new earth from the new Jerusalem. Mm. Amen. And what a wonderful picture and a hope that that provides us for those who believe. And perhaps you're listening out there today and you've never heard these descriptions of the millennial kingdom before. Perhaps you've never heard that the Bible describes a restored 
Israel, along with a restored people. Uh, if you'd like to dive more into the resources that Dr. Sigler mentioned, again, that's Dr. Michael Vlock's book, Has the Church Replaced Israel?, as well as Pastor Barry Horner's book called Future Israel. And uh, also, of course, I think Dr. Sigler would agree with this. Our primary text, though, are, are the scriptures. That is our ultimate authority. And if you've not yet read through the prophets, or perhaps you haven't started at Genesis and read all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, I would encourage you to do so. There is so much richness in the Old Testament. And the more that we understand the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the more light we are going to see in the New Testament, the more we're going to be able to understand the New Testament, which quotes from the Old Testament so often. And perhaps you're out there today and you're listening to the Tove podcast and you've never really considered reading the Bible before. You don't really believe the Bible. Uh, well, I'd like to encourage you uh, to pick it up. Uh, it can't harm to uh, just be aware of what the Bible says. And I'd encourage you, though, to read it with an open mind. Because if the things written in the Bible really are true, and I believe they are, if they really are true, then it is worth your time and energies to investigate. It really is. And uh, we want you to know that this future day, uh, this future paradise of uh, Eden restored, it is coming, and it's coming with the return of the king. And we would love for you to be there with us when we're in that future paradise. And as Dr. Sigler mentioned earlier, the way to enter that future paradise is pretty simple. It's simply by faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. He's done all the work for us. And all the Bible says is that all we have to do is believe upon him. And righteousness will be credited to our account. If you have further questions about that, I'm happy to chat with you through the Tove Podcast Facebook page. Uh, feel free to check out our Facebook page for all kinds of discussions going on at any moment. If you enjoyed today's podcast, you clearly found us. You can find us also on iTunes, Spotify, and a host of other platforms. Dr. Sigler, thank you for joining us today on the Tove Podcast. We greatly appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Shalom from the Tove Podcast. <laughs>